Hello and welcome to the Geeky Medics podcast, the first episode of the new year. My name is Josh Chambers, a medical student at the University of East Anglia. And this podcast, selfishly, gives me an excellent excuse to interview really interesting doctors and healthcare professionals from a range of backgrounds, drilling down to why they chose the speciality they're in and what it's really like to do the job. In this episode, we're concentrating on palliative medicine, where I spoke to Dr. Philip Wilkins, a consultant in the speciality, and asked him what it's really like to be a doctor in the field and where the future of the speciality is heading. I hope you enjoy. Thank you, Dr. Wilkins, for joining us on the podcast. Um, so I thought it'd be really interesting just to, to know more about palliative medicine as a speciality. I don't think there's a lot in undergraduate curriculum on it. I mean, there is in at UEA, of course. Um, but I wondered if you could give, give the people listening to this podca- um, podcast an insight into palliative care. And first off, what sort of is a typical week for a palliative care consultant? Okay. Um, so yeah, so if I talk about typical week, I mean, it, I don't think it's what a lot of people think it is, because certainly the general public think it's all death and dying. Uh, and obviously, I, a large proportion of my patients are in their last six months of life, and so we do deal quite a lot with that. But most of it is actually trying to optimise time for people. So I'll see people to manage bizarre and difficult symptoms and things which are troubling them, but we also get very heavily involved with um, trying to manage how a family is dealing with things and how also supporting other professionals in how they're dealing with what is a very emotional and very distressing time for everybody involved. Um, We also, we cross... A lot of different areas so it's not just um, we work in acute hospitals in community hospitals in the community itself as well as specialist settings like hospices um, so we are heavily involved across quite a lot of areas we're getting involved much earlier in diseases and the whole term palliative has gone from something which when you mention it to a patient they look completely blankly at you and don't know what it means at all to now people um, think palliative that means I'm dying imminently mm. what's what's going on what have, what have the other doctors not told me so again we're looking at the, the terminology of it because we're getting involved much earlier mm. and how how we should be phrasing it and how to be less threatening really because a lot of people are frightened of us yeah understandably but usually one so I have been involved just as the pain doctor and once people then get to know us and realise actually we're just trying to help them and we're trying to improve things, um, they are much less threatened. So again, our hospice-type setting is a unit called Priscilla Bacon Lodge, and historically, uh, local people have always thought, well, that's the place you just... It's a one-way ticket. You never get out of there. You just go in and die. Um, So nobody wants to come and see us in clinic. So... We often get involved a bit earlier in the acute setting and things, and then often they're delighted to come and see us yeah, <laughs> and yeah. realise it's not all about death and dying. And in getting involved earlier, like you sort of mentioned pain management, I mean, what other things are you, are you managing earlier in patients? So, um, I mean, again, 
it's a, early in disease it's a little bit nebulous but we what we've built up a, a specialty in really is, is improving symptom control and difficult complex symptoms trying to improve them so we work alongside the teams who are improving the disease and we're trying to improve how the person feels mm. and and their symptoms so the classic thing is always pain and pain is quite a a good thing for people to feel less threatened by coming and seeing us but we see all sorts of things like breathlessness is a really big problem that we get involved with because again often treating the underlying cause of the breathlessness doesn't necessarily make someone feel less breathless mm -hmm. um, and it's how to deal with that in the day-to-day -day life so just about any symptom we can see I mean we we get some of the slightly more unusual things like hiccups which you think is just a Oh, it's a bit of an annoyance, but if you're constantly hiccuping mm. all day that is for months on end, that's what's affecting yeah. them. Um, and it's something which, again, if you look it up in, or do a Google search for it, you will come up with a whole load of old wives' tales as dad treat hiccups, but you mm. won't come up with something which concretely actually works for hiccups yeah. or something. So we do get some of the symptoms which people are sort of struggling a little bit with and we will try and help with. Mm. Um, so what made you go to palliative care then? Was it something you always considered or...? Uh, it was a little bit of a roundabout route. <laughs> it was not straightforward. Um, when I was at medical school, I was determined I was going to be a surgeon, which is probably the polar opposite of palliative care. Yeah, back in, um, but um, I, So I started off doing surgery, but I got disillusioned in the lifestyle. Um, it was just hours and hours, constant work. So I... I then sat down and thought, what sort of patients do I like seeing? And what actually do I enjoy in day to day? And I thought I enjoyed seeing cancer patients. Um, so I then went and looked at, I, I did a post in, um, it was six months of oncology and six months of palliative care and enjoyed the palliative care aspect. Mm -hmm. um, it, was, it was a slightly unusual, because I was told at one of my um, um, medicine rotations which to, to get my MRCP on that but they're very different specialties so you've got to decide which one you want to do is oncology and palliative care yeah. so it was useful that I could do six months of each and sort of uh, decide and decide and then I was drawn much more towards the palliative care and I think it's essentially you get the luxury of spending a lot more time and working out a lot more time actually what is important to people you don't just have five minutes to sit there and say, right, um, we're going to sort out your jaundice or whatever. Mm. You get to, well, actually, what is the problem? Why, why is it affecting you? And certainly a lot of the people we see, we get referred for pain or something, and you find out actually that's the least of their problems. Mm. Mm. Um, and you, you can achieve an awful lot for people. Because um, yeah. a, a lot of people think that palliative care is very depressing. Um and in some ways, I mean, all my patients do die, but what we achieve before we get there can be a lot more than in a lot of other specialties in my experience. But you say all your, all your patients die. I mean, how do you, how do you sort of cope with that? I mean, yeah, the average doctor might sort of have, you know, one or two, you know, one or two. It is, I mean, I think... I mean, obviously, I said it as a throwaway comment. It's not meant to be a throwaway no, comment no, at all, but... It is something I think you do, because what surprised me a lot of the time is, obviously we get junior doctors coming through our specialty, 
And again, I think because I do it day in, day out, what often surprised me with the, the junior doctors, what they, they can cope with all the complex symptoms and managing and doing that, it is the psychological aspect that they struggle with and the fact that all the patients, however much effort you're putting in, they're getting worse and yeah. they'll die. Um, and that's what most of the people seem to struggle with and that's what the colleagues struggle with is is the emotional and psychological aspect of constantly seeing people dying. Um, I think everyone has to approach it differently. Mm. My approach is to be completely different outside of work and do lots of other things outside work and just have time to just completely forget about it all. Mm. Um, the, it is an important aspect and it is something that say so you just have to find ways of dealing with that because you can't it, it is it is a constant feature you can't get away from it um, and all specialties will have distressing upsetting people and people who are going to die but I think the problem with particular is it's sort of concentrated yeah and we also get the more complex ones so the people that are other people are struggling with they ask us to help with so we get concentrated all the more distressing and difficult ones you mentioned there about if actually how you got into it but also uh, about junior doctors and the specialty Mm. how do people go about moving their way or or if they're interested to try it out or i mean there's certainly i mean i think it's getting it's getting easier i think to get into it because certainly, again, I mean, in, in medical school, we didn't have anything to do with end-of-life care or palliative in any way. Um, whereas, as you say, now the guidance is that all medical schools should have a certain length of time doing palliative care. So hopefully people are exposed to it to sort of see what it feels like. Um, and although... I'm not aware of, I mean, certainly not locally, and I'm not aware of anywhere where sort of F1 and F2 years, mm. it involves party medicine. We are very open, and I think most areas are very open to in taster weeks in your F1 to come and yeah. spend some time with us and see what it's like and whether it is what you think it is. And mm. um, um, the other thing is then it's, it, it's a it's obviously the way thing because the way things used to be structured it was quite difficult to work out how you're going to go into things and how, but basically with the CMT and then the ST training you can very easily go from CMT to looking for an ST post um, I part of the downfalls to that in my opinion is again I don't regret doing my surgical time no, no. Um, I think palliative care is something which the more different specialties and the more experience you've got of different things mm. the better it will be whereas I'm a little bit worried that you can get just sort of channeled into palliative care now and not have the knowledge of what the day to day things are like on mm. a surgical ward or a yeah. medical ward and equally how how other specialties might deal with the symptoms that we're dealing with because quite often we don't want we're tempted to manage the pain in certain ways but actually sometimes it might be useful to see an alternative approach and, and speak to colleagues about things. but I think there's increasing ways of trying to get into it but I would if, if there are juniors who are interested in it what I would recommend is just speak to 
your local team. Yeah. Because most people usually suggest that most palliative care physicians are reasonably friendly <laughs> and will 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 It should come with. <laughs> so most of us will and historically again it's been a bit of a Cinderella specialty. I mean certainly when I was when I was training in registrar posts that it was sort of looked down on and it was not mm. really a proper specialty mm. and you don't mm. really do any proper medicine. You just Yeah. So I mean, it's quite We're very open to people, enthusiastic people yes. coming to yeah. us and joining us. So. Yeah. I, I mean, it's a new speciality, relatively. Relatively, you know, yes. Yeah. Saunders and, yeah. and yeah. what she did and, and things. What do you think the future of the speciality is moving forward? I mean, you mentioned earlier about earlier seeing patients. Like yeah. Earlier. There's the, name it, change. There's probably, well, there are changes in there. So, I mean, some of the name changes, as I say, in, in terms of what palliative care is, there is this fear that uh, people are frightened that it just means that you're dying. So some units are changing to supportive care um, and looking at more at wider things and earlier in diseases. We may even, which which goes against a lot of what we do because we're getting involved with lots more diseases and lots more different types of diseases. We're also, I mean, one of the areas which I'm currently looking at is... Um, what's called transitioning from paediatric services to adult services because there's a whole host of um, s- diseases which traditionally were life-limiting within childhood mm-hmm. that now children are living into their adult years yeah. and there isn't really a service for them when they're adults because they're often... They, ha- they don't fit into one nice different specialty. They have lots of needs... They are still going to be life-limiting, but we don't really know how long they're going to live for. They've got lots of problems. So it's looking at that. And I think there's going to be lots of different working. So with things like that, with things like neurology and working with that, the difficulty could be that we end up doing just being this sort of nebulous thing that you don't really quite know what what it is. Um, So I think ironically there may be quite a bit more specialisation in the future Um, I think we're also going to get more and more involved with um, we're already quite heavily involved with the ethical side of things um, which is a big part of what we do and I think there's going to be lots of change with that I think it's only a matter of time before euthanasia becomes legalised and I don't think anyone's thought through how you do it Mm. and what, what the implications are so I think there's going to be a lot of different areas going through as to what we're going to be specialising in. I mean, euthanasia, um, I mean, you would... You, actually, I'd n- I had never even considered it, but of course, right. I suppose you would be the speciality. I, I think I, so. I mean, it, it's difficult. I mean, obviously, we are, we are the specialty which gets it, along with, obviously, general practitioners. Um, we are one of the... Spe- and, with one especially which it's a constant feature of what we're doing and, and obviously we are we get a lot of people saying oh you wouldn't let you wouldn't let a dog suffer like this all the time it's usually relatives that say it all the time um, but also patients do it and you do get people asking can't you just finish me now and things and mm-hmm. so we do have ways of approaching it um, I mean certainly the whole thing is such an ethical minefield that and trying to safeguard vulnerable patients mm. Mm. Um, 
that actually as a palliative care physician it is incredibly useful that it's illegal because it opens up how you discuss about it and you can talk through about it and why do you feel that your life is not worth living mm-hmm. um, so but I think the whole position is going to change um, and I just don't know how what that opens up for the future as well I think that's I mean, the whole thing that, yeah that's uh, a whole it's a whole nother podcast <laughs> <laughs> You, obviously, Cicely Saunders is trained as a she was trained as a nurse, as a social worker, yeah. as a doctor. Yeah, no. What what type of person should go into to palliative? Yeah. I mean, the whole. I mean, again, what obviously most specialties regard themselves as multidisciplinary and co-working. Constantly, when we are getting students through with us and junior doctors through with us, they regard actually we do work multidisciplinary much much more than a lot of specialties so you do have to be able to work with colleagues liaise with colleagues both in different disciplines but also in different specialties we have to work well with with all our colleagues across the the acute trust with GPs so you do have to work well with colleagues even ones who you find difficult to work with yeah. um, you also I think it's a specialty where, say, you spend a lot more time with the patients and their relatives. So you do have to be comfortable talking about things which you know actually that person doesn't want to talk about. Um, and you do have to be able to, um, to in non-threatening ways, discuss with people. So if you don't really like the aspect of communication skills and things. Yeah. It's not for you, really, because that is a massive part of what we do. Um, and I think the, it, it's hard to know, because I would never sort of want to say, oh, well, you, you only do this if you're doing that. Or, yeah, but if you look at palliative care physicians, they are a very, very diverse group. And they've all come in from different angles, and they, but I'd say it, it's it's probably the working with colleagues and spending a lot more time with patients, and and it's also the trying to get over the the be all and end all is not sort of curing the disease and is not um, fixing whatever the problem is because most of our patients we can't fix them, mm. um, so it's it's accepting. I'm not, I can't stop this cancer getting worse um, and accepting that that's not the whole emphasis. The whole emphasis is, okay, this person's disease is terrible, their life is terrible as well and they've got lots of other problems. How can we improve this as best we can and, and trying to make the best of... Yeah, you know, uh, yeah. what sort of, <laughs> sort of, sort of tips would you give to junior doctors working with families yeah. and the patients when they're in this sort of in this time like you said that is a huge it's a, bit of your job it's, and it's yeah. really difficult because I suppose what often the the biggest hurdle to stopping you doing all these things is is several things one is time and as a junior doctor you're always worried I've got hundreds of other things I can do if I start talking to them about the pain or something I'm going to be here for hours and hours um, and I haven't got time for that so I'll just quickly skip over um, The another one is I'm going to get this wrong and I'm going to make it worse 
and it's going to be terrible and if I say the wrong thing it's going to make it worse and there obviously are lots of other things but they're the two big things which I think they're both wrong <laughs> so, that as a junior doctor yes you've got lots of things you've been bleeped to go and do hundreds of other things at the same time but it actually doesn't take as long as you think it's going to if you do it properly and if you do it openly and it saves you time in the future so it's always worth doing it and just generally being open with it and the other thing about I'm going to get it wrong and I'm going to make it worse actually you don't if you if you if you're approaching these difficult things that the patients are frightened of and scared of obviously you're not going to you don't want to be flippant you don't want to um, make it look as though the person is bad for talking about all this if you are just doing it in a very open and honest way and saying well I'm not sure but I wonder whether this might be helpful and can you tell me what's and show a genuine interest in things it will always go well <laughs> I mean it won't go how you envisage and it may be uncomfortable while you're doing it but the patients will be very grateful for it because they're terrified of it as well and they don't they want to have the conversation, but don't want to have the conversation. Mm. So I'd say, if in doubt, just start talking and do it in a non-threatening way and very vague things to start with, because they will pin it down. And, and you will, as you say, if you if you do it correctly and you start with some non-threatening things to start with, they will get onto the topic themselves. They will exactly what you said. I mean, they, they don't want to talk about it. Mm. I mean, it's not really, as, as yeah. a junior doctor, if you have it's not really, you it's not top of your, <laughs> yeah, no. but it has to be done. And yeah. so to navigate that is yeah. really difficult. But I suppose. But there are, I mean, obviously, medical schools now do lots and lots of communication skills, mm. but it's not, it's not as difficult as you think it's going to be. Uh, as long as you don't, as long as you don't sort of shut people up, you do actually genuinely listen to them because basically they want to be listened to. Um, so pick up on the clues that they're giving listen to if they'll say something quite subtle to start with that you think why have they said that mm. it doesn't quite fit with what I've asked them about now either they've misheard you <laughs> and in which case clarify yeah. or they've said it for a reason like because mm. they know that your time is precious so they don't tell you things which are irrelevant. If they say something that doesn't quite fit with what you said, it's something that's important to them to pick up on it. You don't have to pick up on it straight away. You can come back to it and stuff, yeah. but listen to what they're saying and pick up on their cues. As a, a junior doctor faced with things like this, before you, made, before you phone the palliative mm. care team you know, in the hospital, yeah. do you have any top tips uh, in, in these initial stages, or, or is it phone the palliative care team as soon as possible and um, I suppose it's difficult because again obviously because we do an increasing on call and we're doing things then the difficult the, the worst ones for us are always the ones that it's, well, it's usually sort of over the weekend in the night and you get called about and it's this thing has been building up and building up yeah. over days and why didn't someone speak to us yeah, yeah. earlier? So, so yes, we do like to be called earlier, but equally, the sorts of things which are useful for us and useful for the patient is making sure you have gone through everything beforehand. Uh, I mean, make sure that you have looked at what, what drugs are there on and could it actually be the drug that's the problem? Is, the, is it the right 
I mean, if they're being sick or something, have they picked an appropriate antiemetic? So do a little bit of digging to start with and check. Is everything that's been done up to now, is it the most appropriate thing? Or are we missing something else? Do we need to be looking at something? Because again, I will probably be asking, <laughs> what, what have you done about this? Why has gone on? And make sure you've got it clear in your head why it's all going on and what, why this particular problem is happening now. Because then you may find, actually you think, oh, well, that's what's happened. I don't need to call them <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and work it out for yourself. So it, it's being, I mean, one thing we try and push as bad to go is being thorough and working everything out to, um, and looking at all the details as to why the problem's there. The, I mean, the other things we get called about, obviously, is distress amongst family and relatives and things. And again, some of that as a junior doctor may be outside of your ability to, to manage it. But the, the simple things, again, are not sort of to go head on and, but I know that I'm right, and you may be right, but listen to what people are worried about and what's, what they feel is the problem and why they think that you're mistreating their relative or whatever and what's going on, because again a lot of the time it's they want to be heard and they're frightened and they don't understand what's going on but you don't jump in and start yeah. explaining things yeah you listen to what what the what the problems are why they're worried about things and then you can start helping well how why has it gone wrong up to now sort of thing brilliant well i I have no more questions for you. <laughs> thank you very much for joining us on the podcast thank you Thank you again for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast and want to hear more from us, please consider subscribing to your podcast provider. You can also follow Geeky Medics on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. We'd love to hear from you with suggestions on who you would like to hear from next. Thank you to the producers of this episode of the podcast, Alice Appleton and Dr. Lewis Potter.